It's like, it's like when you're recording a voicemail for yourself, and the first one's like almost good enough, but then you're like, yeah, I can change it a little, and then it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and you just, you end up with the lady, you know. You have reached the voicemail box, so. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, we are back into the Old Testament. We, we had, took a month off. Um, past four weeks. It's been great. Uh, I feel like God really used that time to deepen us as a church in an understanding of discipleship um, as individuals, but also as a body, uh, just kind of calling us back to the basics of what it means to be a student in the school of, of life uh, with Jesus as our teacher. Um, so we're, we're in the book of Numbers, and uh, this year has been the year of the Pentateuch, right? We're studying the five books of Moses. That's sort of our, our goal for the year. So we have Numbers and Deuteronomy back to back for the next several weeks. I think it's seven or eight weeks we're in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then we're going to go into the Gospel of Matthew uh, to finish out the year. So that'll be, that'll be really great. Um, so we're starting Numbers tonight. And I want to get through Numbers 1 through 10, kind of our, our reading portion uh, this week. It's also sort of a natural section in the outline of Numbers, which I'll, uh, I'll go through uh, tonight in a little bit. But our, our, so our English title of this book is Numbers, which is sort of a, a really boring title. I think, isn't that the name of a piece of software that does spreadsheets? Isn't it called Numbers? <laughs> um, so you might think accountants, you know, uh, number crunching. But really, the... The title Numbers doesn't paint the best picture of what's actually in this book. There are a lot of numbers in the book of Numbers. Um, But in Hebrew, the title is actually In the Wilderness. Uh, And and usually the titles of Hebrew books are um, like the first few words of the book. And so Genesis is in the beginning, right? Um, So... uh, the, the book of Numbers opens up like this. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. And really, that's really what the, the, the book is about. God dealing with his people in the wilderness. Okay, This is not a book. It was supposed to be a book of the promised land. But there's a lot that God has to do in his people before we actually get there. So in the wilderness gives us a better heads up of what's to come. Right? There's a lot of wilderness in here. There's a lot of journeying and traveling and wandering that, uh, that is ahead of us. Um, I mentioned when we were in the book of Leviticus that the book of Leviticus slows the passage of time way down. Right? Yes. Who's winning? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a subtle sound. Like everyone just knows. It's not like a generic alert. It's just... The ESPN alert. Um, in the five books of Moses, the time goes very fast, and then it slows, slows, slows to, to Leviticus, and then it speeds up again from Numbers and Deuteronomy. All right? Um, so we, we, when we finished Leviticus, we were still right outside of the tent, um, and God is giving them laws. Here we pick the story back up, and there's a, there's a date in the first verse of the book. On the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. All right, so this, this is just a year after um, the, the first Passover. All right? um, numbers is, it speeds up and it slows down, it speeds up and it slows down. And that's why there are a lot of time stamps in the book of Numbers. Did you notice that as you were reading? There's a lot of dates listed. Um, it's a good practice as you're reading to note the dates as you go along so you know kind of how much time is elapsing. It gives you a sense of what's taking place in real time. Um, it's the, the amount of ink is not proportional to the amount of time that passes in the book of Numbers okay? or, or in, in any of the Pentateuch. Um, so, but before we dive into numbers, I want to kind of review the big story up till now, because it's been a little while. Uh, even in Leviticus, we kind of slowed down. So here's, here's the big picture story. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham 
to uh, walk with him, to learn from him, so that he can make Abraham into a family through whom he can bless the world. He calls Abraham, he says, Abraham, uh, go from your father's country, and I will make you a great nation. You're going to be the father of many nations. Um, to, To make them a blessing to the earth... But the other part of the promise, and this really gets filled out in Genesis 15, in that part of the covenant, um, is to give him a land, to give him a a promised land. And it's the land of Canaan. Exodus uh, deals with, it's 400 years after Abraham. And Exodus deals with the deliverance from bondage and the establishment of the covenant and the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. Uh, Leviticus has filled out Uh, what it means to be the people of God in every aspect of life. Here's what God desires. Here's what the will of God is. Here's how to live on earth as it is in heaven. And and so the the book of Leviticus fills out all kinds of laws and advice for living. And all of this, all of the story so far, has been in preparation to enter the promised land. There has been a destination all along. In fact, there's been a destination since God called Abraham. So for 400 years, at least, God has said, this is the destination. This is what I'm preparing you for. And that whole time, he is faithful to that promise. Numbers then tells the story of the first generation of the people of God, the first generation's failure to really get what God was trying to teach them. And they are sentenced to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years as a result. Um, And I just want to remind us of a scripture that we've talked about a lot as we've been going through the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, These things which were written before were written for our instruction. And he specifically is referring to this story about the exodus and the, the wanderings of the people of God. God is trying to teach his people something. And we can learn from God what he wants to teach us through this passage of scripture. So this is a story for us. Okay? It's not just a story of antiquity. It's not just a story of those foolish Israelites who just couldn't, they couldn't trust God for whatever reason. This is a story for us. And every warning that we see in this book, we need to take in our own lives. Um, so I want to read a few passages that um, set the backdrop for the book of Numbers, specifically the, the preparation to enter the land. Okay, at this point, the people of God are being prepared to enter into the promised land. Okay, they, they don't get it, <laughs> and they have to wait 40 more years. But the plan right now, as we start the book of Numbers, is to enter the promised land. Uh, Genesis 15 Starting in verse 13. This is really the ceremonial part of God's covenant with Abraham. Remember when he cuts the animals in half and he puts them in the the smoking fire pot, goes through the the center of the halves of the animals. This is where the, the real ceremony of the covenant happens. He calls Abraham in chapter 12. This is where the ceremony is. And here's what he says during this. Uh, Verse 12 says, The sun was going down and deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's the time in in Egypt. But I will bring, and this is God telling this to Abraham. Remember that. He's not telling this to Moses. He's telling this to Abraham 400 years ahead of time. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, that's Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I mean, that that was fulfilled during the Exodus. They came out and they plundered the Egyptians on the way out. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's always an interesting verse. I'm sure you've heard that verse before. But God says, I don't want you to come through because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The intention was that 
when the people came into the land, they would dispossess the occupying peoples of the land. Right? And it was really an act of judgment on those peoples that were inhabiting the land. But he says, not yet. The, their iniquity is not yet complete. Okay? So God's, God's working with the Amorites and the inhabitants of Canaan, even then, giving them chances to repent, giving them chances to understand who he is. Um, but he also sees that we are headed toward a time of judgment. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. These are all peoples that God is going to drive out when the time is right. And he is going to have his people come in and inhabit the land, occupy their their land. Uh, At the right time, he says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now go to Exodus 23. Um, And this reminds me to remind you all to uh, since as we're, I challenged us at the beginning of our trip through the Bible to have a Bible that you're going through with that you kind of hold on to for the for the duration of our of our trip through the Bible. Um, so just want to remind us, you can if you haven't been bring your Bibles back to church with you because we'll be really digging into the actual scriptures here um, in the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 23 verse 20. Behold, and this is God talking to Moses. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Okay, again, this is is, uh, right after the Exodus, all right? This is God's. Uh, instruction for when they go into the land, here's how they're to do it. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the number of your days, and I will send my terror before you, and will overthrow into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. And I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. This is God's plan. His plan all along was to, at the right time, send his people into the promised land And they were to essentially conduct a military campaign of occupation and conquest. Okay? This is important to note because it makes the portion of Scripture that we're studying tonight, it makes it make a lot more sense. All right? So go to Numbers. Take a census, verse 2. Of chapter 1. Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upwards, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. So,
the time has come to make preparations uh, to go into the promised land and drive out the inhabitants, which makes sense of why we have this census. Okay? And it's a census of every able-bodied male who can go to war. Okay? So the first 10 chapters, this is kind of the big point tonight, the first 10 chapters of Numbers are preparations for a military campaign. And a lot of it makes sense when you understand that that's what's going on here. We're numbering the people. <laughs> in, in the Gospels, it talks about counting the cost. Who, before he goes to war, doesn't sit down and number his troops? Right? The census is about figuring out how big of a force we have. <clears throat> uh, so all the tribes are listed. Every man of war... Um, not really going to get into that. It's just a pretty formulaic way of saying it. Um, and they number all the, the heads of those tribes. Um, and there's 603,550, which means that there were probably two and a half or so million people in total, because this was all the, the fighting age men. So this is a big group now, right? This is, this is a full-on nation at this point. Um, so in chapter 2... Actually, at the end of chapter 1, it says that the Levites are exempted from the census uh, because they have a special job uh, not to be kind of in the normal infantry, in the regular infantry, but their job is to guard and care for the tabernacle and its furnishings. Um, And so here's what's happening. The people are being prepared to go in to enemy territory. And in that Exodus portion, it says, when you go in, there's idols in the land. And you're going to be tempted. Don't serve those gods. Okay? So God is preparing his people both to conduct the military campaign, but also to remain pure in the midst of idolatry. They're going to go in to the land, and there's going to be lots of foreign gods there. Okay? So a lot of the preparations that are made here in the first ten chapters of Exodus, or of Numbers, have to do with trying to ensure that the people, once they get to the land... Remain God's people and remember who they are. So there's a lot of attention given to guarding and protecting the tabernacle. Um, and there's a lot of significance here. This, is, this, this means a lot. Everything, I mean, and you know this if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Their success in battle has to do with the Ark of the Covenant. And the state of the tabernacle and the the purity of where the presence of God comes into the earth and out from the people. So they're mounting a military campaign. Their success in that military campaign has everything to do with the tabernacle, um, what goes on in and around the tabernacle. So that explains why so much detail is given to the, uh, the Levites and their role to protect and care for and carry and transport uh, the tabernacle. Um, so they're the guardians. The Levites are the guardians. Um, go to chapter 3. So chapters 2 through 4 are really about the duties of the Levites in caring for the temple of God. And they are set apart from the normal, uh, the other tribes, to specifically protect the house of God. And it, so it talks about the arrangement of the camp, where all the tribes are to, to encamp, all right? And there's sort of an outer ring, which are the tribes. And then the tribe of Levi is split up into three parts. And it's sort of closer into where the tabernacle is. And then at the east side of the tabernacle is Moses and Aaron. Now, why is that significant? What's on the east side? The entrance. Okay? At the very entrance of the tabernacle. So you've got all the tribes around the tabernacle. Then you've got all the Levites on the inner ring closest to the tabernacle. But then at the entrance, you have the head of God's people. And this is, you see the protection and the, 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 the uh, watchfulness and the care that God is concerned with. You have to protect the temple. Um, go to chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, Verse 6, bring the tribe of Levi near, set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him. 
and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. And as they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons, and they are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Okay? Now this outsider trying to get into the temple of God is not a seeker. (laughs) He's not visiting church. This is a hostile enemy heading toward Command Central. Right? They're going into enemy territory. They're, they're penetrating the, the borders of the enemy. And around, all surrounding them, are going to be the enemies of the people of God. We don't know everything that's going to happen when we get there. But we need to make sure that the house of God is protected. We have to protect the house of God. Um, I also think it's really interesting to note how tangible and concrete their ministry was. You know, we think of ministry as some sort of spiritual uh, gifting. But their ministry was literally handle the forks. (laughs) Get the goatskins coverings and roll them up and carry them. That was ministry. These were the pastors. And it was tangible and concrete. Keep the forks clean. Keep them holy. Don't use them to toast marshmallows. (laughs) These are for one purpose. Guard the purpose. All of our lives depend on every aspect of the tabernacle being kept holy and set apart. And this points us to the fact that they understood that Fulfilling their mission as the purpose of God was, uh, was a warfare. It was not a guaranteed. It was not a red carpet that was rolled out before them. To fulfill their purpose as the people of God, they were going to have to occupy the enemy of the territory and drive them out. Okay? Now, this is highly symbolic, I think, uh, for the mission of the church. Okay? Jesus said... I give you the keys to the kingdom, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Now, the gates aren't attacking you. (laughs) Gates are defensive. And so that means that the church is storming the gates. The church is possessing the land. The church is driving out the enemy from before us. And that work is tricky. Yes, we have the victory. Yes, God sends his angel before us. Yes, he gives us everything that we need. His presence is here among us. But that means that we have to protect the place where his presence resides. We have to keep ourselves holy. We have to protect the house and don't let anything come into the house of God that would compromise it. Because once we do, the whole mission falls apart. The whole thing falls apart. So you see the care and the watchfulness and the diligence that God is looking for in the people who are specifically called to minister in his tabernacle. All right, chapter 5. There's some additional laws for the community together. It's interesting. He says, listen, if anyone's unclean, send them out. If anyone has a disease or deformity, Send them out. Now, this isn't because God doesn't like them. It's because they need the people who are engaging the enemy to be at full strength. Right? Make sure there's no hidden weaknesses here. And if there are weaknesses, people need to say it, yes, and remove themselves from the front lines. Um, And then it's an interesting placement for this strange uh, adultery test. Was that kind of abrupt to you? Did it kind of seem a little weird? Um, If you look at the book of Numbers as a whole, we finish on the plains of Moab, and what's happening? The children of Israel are committing adultery with the daughters of Moab. Okay? So, ahead of time, 
And I think it's really important that in this test for adultery, it really is, is emphasizing the jealousy of the husband. Okay? Uh, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, and there's even an offering of jealousy. All right? And I really believe that this points to, the, to God's jealousy over his bride's purity. As we enter into a land where there's going to be lots of temptations to become defiled and become impure. Even, even the possibility of adultery warrants a closer look at the situation. Okay, so I don't think this is, I don't think this is, uh, stacks the deck against women or, or gives men an unfair uh, advantage. I think that if you read it for what it is, it's God saying, yes, the jealousy that a husband has is a legitimate thing. Why? Because that's what I feel for my people. My people are going in, and it, sadly, at the end of Numbers, they are literally committing adultery <laughs> with the people in the land. And God is jealous. And Phineas, one of the most shocking episodes in the whole Old Testament is when Phineas rises up and throws a spear through two adulterers in the act. Right? So the whole idea of adultery is, is not just a, a, an arbitrary law here. It's there is a desire for purity. God wants all of his people, and he doesn't want foreign gods and influences to steal their hearts away from him. Uh, chapter 6 talks about the Nazarite vow. Right? And the Nazarite vow was basically, it was a voluntary period of consecration to the Lord. Um, over and above normal uh, godliness. I was going to say Christianity, but it wasn't Christianity at that point. Over and above with the normal call of, of every person in the people of God, it was a, a, an added consecration, over and above. Um, Amos, go to Amos 3.9. Has anyone ever told you that before? Go to Amos 3.9. <laughs> I have to do some digging here in the Minor Prophets. I can never remember the order. After Joel. I don't know if this is the right verse. Two nine, sorry. Amos two nine. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oak. Remember that the Amorites was one of the inhabitants of, of Canaan. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? But you made the Nazarites drunk, drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So it was evidently, according to what Amos or what God is saying through Amos here, that it was an asset to the nation of Israel to have young men who, who consecrated themselves over and above uh, through this period of devotion. And it was, it, was, it was a strength to the people as they went about their mission. There were some young men who gave themselves to radical devotion to the Lord. Um, and we see, I think John was under some sort of Nazarite vow, John the Baptist, right? This was a tradition in the people of God that sometimes there are periods of extra devotion to the Lord. And <laughs> I, I mentioned this only because I was talking with Tommy and Ashley about uh, uh, the Mormons and, and other cults last night. But it would be like a, the Mormon mission, right? For two years, you go and you wear the goofy white shirts and you ride around on bikes and you are 
dedicated over and above the normal member. Right now, I'm not condoning anything that the Mormon church teaches. Um, but that period of devotion, that's, that's sort of a modern day picture of that. They're under a vow. And they don't, they don't do things like normal people do. All right? And so Amos is saying that when, they were, when, when God sent them into the promised land, he raised up Nazarites for them. Um, and they were a strength to the people of God. This would be a good time to um, call for interns in the church, young men, to uh, dedicate a year or two to the church. All right, now chapter 7 is a bit confusing because it's a retrospective, meaning it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a jump back in time. And it's filling out what happened at the consecration of the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. All right. Uh, so we jump back in time, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I'm getting a little bit wordy as it is. Um, but the, the interesting thing in chapter 7 is to see how big of a deal the consecration of the tabernacle was. Every tribe, did you see all the numbers of stuff? Can you imagine the amount of, of animals that were being sacrificed? They went on for 12 days, and they all brought like substantial offerings um, and also in chapter 7, we get a, another glimpse of the way that God interacts with Moses, the, the relationship that God shared with Moses. At the end of chapter 7, it says, When Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony, from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Which is a really interesting detail. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, you remember, it has those two cherubim there, and that was the throne. The strange thing to a pagan, to pagan eyes about the Ark of the Covenant was that on that throne there should have been a figure of a deity, but there was none. But that's where God came down. That's where His Spirit came to dwell, and that's where His voice spoke to Moses. So that's really where God's throne was, uh, from between the two cherubim. And obviously, that's a that's a picture of what's actually in heaven. God, every time we see in heaven, he's surrounded his throne and there's cherubim around him. You know, you think of Isaiah 6. Uh, there were cherubim and the two wings. With two wings, he flew. With two, he covered his eyes. With two wings, he covered his feet. God is surrounded by cherubim. And the, the Ark of the Covenant was just a little, a little image of that, a little symbol. Uh, chapter 8 talks about the Levites again and... and this process of purification and consecration that they were to undergo. And again, you, you see the, the care and the detail that's given to consecration, setting apart, purity. Um, it's, it's like they are, instead of, instead of arming, like in a lot of ancient literature, the arming of the soldier. You see, like, and they put on the, the, whatever the parts of armor are called. What's, what's on the, sh- the shins, the shin guards and the gauntlets and the breastplate and the, all the... There's a lot of scenes in, in ancient literature that had to do with the arming of the soldier. Well, here, it's the arming of the priests, but they're arming themselves with purity and holiness and consecration as they head into battle. Um, chapter 9, they celebrate the Passover... And then chapter 10 um, talks about these silver trumpets, right? And these are battle trumpets, like bugle, right? Forward march, okay? It's rousing the troops and sounding the alarm. And you think of all the different kinds of trumpets. Uh, trumpets are actually significant in, uh, in Scripture. Um, there's the Feast of Trumpets. There is uh, the trumpet call at the, at the return of Christ, the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation, um, but here in verse, he says that uh, you shall make two silver trumpets. In verse 2, of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall make them for summoning the congregation and for breaking the camp. Bringing everyone together and for heading out. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only once, and then there's this, this signal system that they have with the, with the trumpets. So in verse 11, finally, all the preparations are made. The arrangement of the camp has been set. 
the Levites have been consecrated and purified and, and all the arrangements have been made. The men have been counted. And it says in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. So it describes their, their march and their journey. Okay? Now Deuteronomy tells us that it's about a 13-day march to where they needed to get. And it took them 40 years. <laughs> but um, their first leg of the journey was to be a three-day march. It says in verse 33, So they set out from the mount of the Lord for three days' journey. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them for three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. So they were to kind of put the, put the pedal down for three days and then go and rest. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day wherever they set, whenever they set out from the camp. And I love, this, I love this verse. And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Talk about an awesome rhythm of life. <laughs> yep, we're up. The presence of God is going before us. It is scattering the enemies of the people of God. And when it comes to rest, we are all drinking deeply of the presence of God. Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. I just think that would be awesome if we woke up with a sense of of uh, preparedness and that we understood that as we set out on our day, as we went about our business, the ark of the Lord was going before us and the enemies of God were being scattered and that as we return home from what God has called us to do, he is there and he is among us and he is restoring us and refreshing us. Um, be a great thing to pray in the morning, to just revisit. Arise, O Lord. And let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And at night, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Um, all right, so to set up the rest of the story, chapter 11, verse 1. We've got the, the trumpets, we're going, we're marching. Chapter 11, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outer, outlying parts of the camp. Well, there we go. All right, we've fallen flat on our face. It's like you're ready to march, and all right, and this starts really the cycle of, of people grumbling against the Lord and testing the Lord and he having to come and, and correct them. And eventually he just says, it's not going to happen. I'm going to have to wait until the next generation. And you all are going to have to die out here in the wilderness. And even Moses himself doesn't get to go in, as we see later on in the book of Numbers. Um, so to kind of outline numbers as we, as we continue to go through, just so you can keep it in mind, we have the preparations to enter the land out at Mount Sinai. Okay, and that's what we read this week. It's Numbers 1, 1 through 10, 10. Uh, there are three, basically Numbers is, is structured pretty, pretty normally. It's, there's three sections. And in between sections 1 and 2 and 2 and 3, there's a travel section. And each of those to kind of bridge it. All right. Um, so there's a journey from Sinai to Paran. And that's Numbers 10, 11 through 12, 16. Then we're in the wilderness of Paran, preparing to enter the land. Um, and that's 13, 1 through 20, verse 21. Then there's another travel section, the journey from Kadesh to Moab. And that's chapter 20, verse 22 through chapter 22, verse 1. And that it ends there. They're preparing to enter the land, and they are in Moab. So there's Sinai, Paran, and Moab are kind of the three extended narratives, right? And in between there, there's a couple travel, uh, travel stories. 
And so that's Numbers 22, verse 2, through the end of the book. They, they end the book on the plains of Moab. And actually, if you flip over to the beginning of Deuteronomy, um, verse 5, it says, Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. Um, and so Moses delivers his, his great sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. It's really just three sermons that Moses delivers to the people um, 40 years after the events in the book of Numbers there on the plains of Moab. Um, so another way to outline it or to kind of think of what the, the major themes are, and I like this outline. I found this this week. Um, chapters 1 through 10 are about the proper orientation of the people of God. Everything from physical orientation, right, the, the geographical orientation, to the spiritual orientation of the people. Um, and even the occupational orientation of the people, what they're to, their jobs, their roles, the part they play, the proper orientation. And God sets everything up exactly how they need to be. Chapters 11 through 25 are about disorientation. The people become totally inverted and totally disorganized and totally backward from the way that God arranged them to be originally. Um, so you could call it disorientation. And then from 26 to the end, there's new orientation. They, they, they come to have a new orientation. God has to um, not reorient them, but to give them a new, a new direction at that point. Um, so I liked that, that outline, sort of the orientation, disorientation, and the new orientation as a way to kind of break down the, the major themes in the book of Numbers. Um, all right. So in, in the section we read this week, it was about the proper orientation of God. And always when I read about whether it's an exodus where God's giving them the details of how to, how to construct the tabernacle or in Numbers, where he's telling them exactly where to stand, and here's what your job is, and this tribe, you guys do this, and you guys handle the tongs and the forks, you guys handle the coverings and the frame and the poles. Um, whenever I see sections like that, it really excites me, because it tells me that God is really intimately involved in all the details of what his people are up to, right? And there are, there are verses in the New Testament that echo this idea. In 1 Corinthians 14, I think. No, it's 12. He says that God has arranged the members in the body as he saw fit. God has placed us where we belong in the body. And he has oriented us toward himself and toward each other. And if we, if we grab a hold of that, we see that there, it's, not, it's not an accidental thing that God does in his church. When he brings people together, he has saw fit to bring us together as a church and he has set us up and he has oriented us in the way that he wants and we have only to acknowledge that and receive it and be obedient to it and we will accomplish the mission that he has for us we will possess the part of the land that he wants us to possess all right um so as when you whenever you go through really detailed sections like this kind of zoom out and say, what can I really know about God here? What can I learn about God? Well, he's a detail-oriented God. And that should give us hope. I don't think it's because he's really picky. I think it's because he's really involved. Right? A lot of us would love our authority figures to be this involved in our lives, whether it's our parents or our bosses. We just we want input. Tell me how to do it right. Tell me what, tell me what the, one of the... One of the most stressful things in life is ambiguity about what someone above us wants from us. I don't know what they want. Well, God very clearly tells us exactly what he wants, and he equips us and empowers us to, to do that and to be that. Um, so I take a lot of hope from boring sections like this, that our God, right, what's another thing that he numbers? The hairs on your head. He knows you. He's intimately involved with you. He's a God of numbers. Um, and that shows us his heart for his people. It doesn't show us some arbitrary, boring section of scripture. God is there and he is very involved. Right? He is not an absent parent. He's not a um, passive-aggressive 
boss. He is very clear and very supportive and very on board with uh, helping us thrive in the way that he arranges us. Amen? So we can take hope from this, right? And uh, sometimes you really have to ask yourself, what is this all about? Why did God, why is this part of the, the story of God that he wanted us to have? And if you can come alongside what God is trying to say, there's some really awesome stuff. So as we go through, um, sadly, there's a lot of bad stories coming up, a lot of kind of disheartening stories coming up. Um, So we're going to have to find sources of hope wherever we can. Um, But, um, yeah, so, yeah, next week we'll talk about all the rebellions and, and the punishment to wander in the wilderness and try and see if we can um, still have hope after we, after we go through that. There is hope, right? God has broken this curse. He has broken this cycle. And Jesus undid uh, the failure of, of the people in the wilderness. He undid it by, by the way that he lived his life. Um, yeah, he spent 40 days in the wilderness. We'll get to that next week. A little teaser. He spent 40 days in the wilderness undoing the disobedience and the, the lack of trust uh, that his people uh, did in the 40 years. All right. Well, any, uh, any questions or thoughts? As we get back into the Old Testament, it's going to be a little more, uh, more teaching-oriented, a little more informational at times. Um, probably a little longer again. Um, so if you have questions or... Our goal is for everyone to really have kind of a solid survey of the Old Testament uh, by the time we get through of all of this. So, Annabelle. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it talks about that later on in the book of Numbers. It's a second story where God's asking him to, he tells him to, to give the people water from a rock. And what happens is that Moses doesn't exactly follow the commands of God, and he actually strikes the rock out of anger and wrath. And he does it in the presence of all the people. And so God says, you know, I can't let you disobeyed me and I can't let you enter the promised land. But he does, he does let him see the promised land and he brings him up on a mountain and he says, look at the promised land. And then he, he dies there and he's buried there. So it's, it's a bittersweet ending to, to the life of Moses. He was a faithful guy. He really served God, but he did. God was working in his life all the way to the end. And even at that point in his, in his ministry, God said, you're not off the hook. Um, you can't just you can't just let the rock have it like that. Because he told him to speak to the rock, right? And Moses goes, you know, he's so angry at the people. But we'll talk about that more too. The the journey that Moses was on, and God was bringing Moses, still bringing Moses to the end of himself by by having him lead this stubborn and rebellious people. God is bringing him into his own experience, his own heart. See what it's like to bear with a stubborn and rebellious people that even if you do everything right, they still doubt you. They still think you're out to get them. They still don't trust you, right? These are the lessons that God was teaching Moses. Yeah. 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 That <laughs> you always find the, the most complex part. It is really cool, and the reason I, don't, I I didn't touch it tonight is because I think it might take a little longer to kind of wrap our heads around. But yeah, there was there was the in Exodus it talks about the the consecration of the firstborn that every male that first opens the womb is is consecrated to the Lord. Um, and then the Levites sort of take their place. Um, I don't know. I got to go and I would go have, have to go and look 
I didn't spend a lot of time studying that this this time through. I have I can't remember, but I have looked at that before. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at at some of the things I've read, um, why that transition takes place and and what the significance of it is. But yeah, something to chew on this week. What else? Hey, you guys made it. Anybody else? Where is that firstborn thing? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll look at that. I'll, uh, I may send, some, send something out about that through, through an email or whatever. All right. Um, get your Bible. Get your, uh, your reading Bible and bring it with you. Wear it out. Um, we're going we're gonna to keep marching through with the people. Hopefully we don't uh, suffer their same fate and get, get lost in the wilderness and die. Uh, we'll make it through. We'll make it through into, into the promised land. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, this week as we read, uh, help us to truly heed the instruction. Uh, Lord, to see the example that you want us to see. Um, that we would not do the things that they did as... Uh, as Paul talks about, Lord, in, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Lord, that we would heed and, and take heed less that even though we think we stand, that we would take heed lest we fall. Uh, Lord, we, we know that it is so easy uh, in our hearts to go astray from you. It's so easy to begin to doubt you and question you and grumble. And we want to be, uh, we want to be a people free of grumbling and complaining who can shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, Lord. We know that we are surrounded by uh, people who don't understand you and who are enemies of you. And Lord, we want to dwell in their midst uh, as examples, God, uh, of, of what the true people of God uh, look like. And so, Lord, as we, as we uh, go from here, I, I just want to speak this over us. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. And return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Lord, go before us and return to us uh, as we rise and, and uh, lay down and get up and go out. Uh, Lord, be all around us. Let us be marching, um, facing the cloud. Lord, facing your presence in our lives at all times. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.